So that had a very big impact on my life. It's not surprising that I majored in history. And ultimately, when it came to a career choice, even though everybody thought I was going to be a lawyer, I decided to go into Jewish education. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org. Okay, so here we are in Washington, D.C. We are doing an episode of This Pardes Life uh, in Chutz Laaretz in Washington, D.C. at the lovely apartment of and employee Fallon Schmidt, and we appreciate her hosting us, and uh, all these wonderful people who came out to hear us do a little bit of learning and discussion. And I'm honored to uh, introduce uh, Dr. David Bernstein, who happens to be the Dean of Pardes, among other claims to fame. Uh, And I'm going to let him say a little bit about himself and introduce the text that he has chosen for us to look at together. So uh, thank you to me, and thank you, Fallon, for hosting. My pleasure. Uh, and thank you all for coming. As I've gotten older, I've started to appreciate more and more how much the early part of my life impacted later developments. My parents came to America in 1946. They came from Poland via a DP camp in Germany, uh, having survived the war. The stories that I grew up on Uh, really my bedtime stories, were stories about life in their little town called Brody in Galicia in Poland before the war, what life was like there. Um, And I realize now that they had a, a great need to share what that world was like with their children. And the stories of their quote-unquote, miraculous uh, survival, uh, their escape, uh, and how they managed to survive the war, mostly in the Soviet Union. Those are my bedtime stories. They weren't scary, for the most part, by the way. They were not depressing. They were actually quite uplifting, because life in Brody before the war was quite remarkable, uh, and uh, I think everybody here probably is somewhat familiar with what shtetl life uh, was like in Eastern Europe before the war is something very special, a world that was lost. Um, they were poor, but they were never unhappy being poor. I, I just learned recently from my one surviving aunt, whom I visited uh, here on this trip, that uh, my mother's house uh, actually had no plumbing and they used an outhouse. And I had always known that about my father's house. I didn't know that my mother also. They both grew up in poverty, but you know, when they used to talk about it, you say, yeah, but there were people who were poorer than us. And, uh, and, they, and they felt they had a very happy life. And the story of their escape and survival was a, a story ultimately of triumph. You know, they managed to survive. And even though they were hungry and they were homeless uh, and they had no money, uh, they somehow beat the odds and were among the 10% of Polish Jews who managed to survive the war. So these were not scary or depressing stories. They were exciting stories. I remember when I was a teenager, I first learned that there was something called fairy tales. I had never known such a thing existed. Um, 
I didn't know what American parents told their kids at bedtime. So that had a very big impact on my life, uh, I think in many ways. It's not surprising that I majored in history. It's not surprising that I was particularly interested in East European Jewish history. And ultimately, when it came to a career choice, uh, even though everybody thought I was going to be a lawyer, I decided to go into Jewish education. And I think one of the reasons that I went into Jewish education was that uh, I felt strongly that there must have been a reason for my parents' survival and that I had to make a difference in the world. And if I could do something that might increase the vibrancy and vitality of Jewish life, then that would be a fitting thing for me to do. So, in addition to teaching history at Pardes and being the dean, I've been teaching history for a very long time um, in numerous settings. Um, I also take groups to Poland and to Berlin and to Budapest and different European uh, places of, of Jewish heritage. And uh, I'm very careful in those places, and I think I'm very careful at Pardes not to focus so much on the Shoah, mm -hmm. because Jewish life was so rich that there's so much to learn and so much to, to comprehend about Jewish life uh, that it's, it's a shame to only teach about the destruction. And even from the point of view of the destruction of the Shoah, one can only fully appreciate it if one understands the richness of life that existed. So I think at, at Pardes we, we really limit how much we focus on the Shoah. 90% of what we do is Jewish learning, total learning. Uh, and even in the Jewish history course that I teach, the Shoah is only a small part. Um, we do periodically have a trip to Poland, but we also have a trip to Turkey, and we all have had trips to Germany. Uh, and, and even those trips also focus on Jewish life, not only destruction. Uh, so, when I was making a list, he told me I had to come up with a text that was very important to me, and I came up with a list of about ten different uh, texts. Uh, and, um, you know, in Hilchot Shuvah, the Rambam uh, writes about, I think it's, maybe it's in the fifth chapter, he writes about uh, free will, and that was one of my, it's one of my favorite pieces of the Rambam. I thought of doing that, but as I started to describe some of the sources to Tzvi, he sort of saw that I was more personally attached to this particular source. And so even though it's not in Hebrew and it's not perhaps as challenging in certain ways to understand, um, I thought this would, this would be a good place for me to start because it's, it's connected with a lot of who I am. Which I think, and, and we're going to get into the text, I think we have a real opportunity. Uh, I was also realizing I really don't talk about the Shoah very much. Not with my own children, with my students, it's kind of it's almost surprising to me as I'm hearing myself say that, that uh, it doesn't come up. And, and I think at Pardes, it's a really interesting question. Maybe we don't do enough, and I think we're going to have to get into that a little bit about the choice of, of how much should the Shoah be focused on as part of our Jewish identity today. And I think we're going to have a, we'll, we'll have a conversation about that. 
And also, uh, just so we know, I'm very curious, sort of the combination of your choice to live in Israel and yet also cherish sort of diaspora Jewish life is an interesting... I don't know, there's a tension there for me when I hear that story, like both, you know, the, the sense of, in certain ways, coming to Israel and building a national life is some way a departure from, uh, you know, the, the Eastern European model of Jewish living. I think we should talk about that also. But let, let's get into this text a little bit, and, and, and you'll share with us what mm-hmm. you think is going on here. Sure. So Israel Lichtenstein, uh, who wrote this text, uh, was a member of a group of about... Uh, 70 people who called themselves Oynik Shabbos. Uh, they were in the Warsaw Ghetto and they were led by a man named Emmanuel Ringelblum. Emmanuel Ringelblum is one of my heroes. Um, he was uh, an historian. Um, he was uh, someone who was also a social activist. Um, and uh, played a very important role in the ghetto in terms of organizing self-help committees within apartment buildings. And Ringelblum, there's actually a book written about him a few years ago by Professor Sam Cassow called Who Will Write Our History? Because Ringelblum not only wrote his own diary, but he organized the largest archival group in the Shoah. Uh, And he organized them because he was very afraid that if the Germans won the war, they would write the history of what happened to the Jews of Poland. And he was determined that that should not be the case. And so he gathered around himself, not only historians and writers, he gathered around himself such a diverse group. He gathered rabbis and atheists people of the right, people of the left, men and women, highly educated people, and push it to even, simple Jews. And he gathered them all in that way because, again, this is, he was writing, this is, this is 1940 when he organized it, because he understood that there's no such thing as objectivity in writing history. He said the best we can do is to get many different views of the same thing to get as complete a picture as we can. Um, And they would meet every Shabbat afternoon in the Jewish Historical Institute building in Warsaw, which is still standing, one of the few buildings standing from the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, If you walk in there, you can see that the floor is uh, darkened because it was set on fire, uh, but was not totally destroyed. And... um, they would meet there, and hence they gave themselves the name Onik Shabbos, Onik Shabbat. They organized poetry writing contests for teenagers in order to get people to write about their experiences. They organized research uh, committees into subjects like religious life in the ghetto, the role of women in the ghetto, that was decades before anybody came up with an idea of gender studies smuggling in the ghetto. And at a certain point, once the great deportations began in 1943, sorry, 1942, they felt the need to hide all of the materials. They felt the end was coming. They put the tens of thousands of documents, including report cards from schools, theater tickets, 
programs from concerts, um, candy wrappers, they put it all in metal milk cans and tin boxes. If you've been to the Holocaust Museum here in DC, they have one of the metal milk cans that was given to them by the Jewish Historical Institute. There's one in Yad Vashem as well. Israel Lichtenstein was one of the people involved not only on Shabbos project, but in hiding the materials. So should we start reading? Yeah, let's start reading. Okay, Haley, you want to start reading? I know Haley can read well. Sure. With zeal and zest, I threw myself into the work to help assemble archive materials. I was entrusted to be the custodian. I hid the material. Besides me, no one knew. I confided only in my friend Hirsch Wasser, my superior. Okay, let's stop here for a minute. Uh, I think I said before there were 70, there were 60 members of Oren Shabbos. I correct myself. Only three of them survived the war. 57 out of the 60 were killed. Very fortunately for us, Hirsch Wasser was one of them. And so after the war, Hirschwasser began to go to the hiding places to try to find the metal milk cans and the tin boxes that had been buried. I don't know if you've seen pictures of Warsaw after the war, but Warsaw was 85% destroyed. The ghetto was even more than 85% destroyed. And so it was all rubble. You couldn't identify where the streets were. He started an archaeological expedition, and you can Google this and see it, as well. In 1946, they uncovered the first of the three locations. The second look, they couldn't find the other two. But the second location was located by a Polish construction crew in the 1950s. When they were doing renovations, trying to build a building, and they uncovered the second treasure trove of documents. The third has never been found. Okay. It is well hidden. Please God that it be preserved. That will be the finest and best that we achieved in the present gruesome time. I know that we will not endure. To survive and remain alive after such horrible murders and massacres is impossible. Therefore, I write this testament of mine. Perhaps I am not worthy of being remembered, but just for my grit in working with the society Oneg Shabbat, and for being the most endangered because I hid the entire material. It would be a small thing to give my own head. I risk the head of my dear wife, Gela, Gela Sextian, and my treasure, my little daughter, Margalit. Akiba. I don't want any gratitude, any monument, any praise. I want only remembrance so that my family, brother and sister abroad, may know what has become of my remains. I want my wife to be remembered, Gala Sextine, artist, dozens of works, talented, didn't manage to exhibit, did not show in public. During the three years of war, worked among children as educator, teacher, made stage sets, costumes for the children's productions, received awards. Now, together with me, we are preparing to receive death. I want my little daughter to be remembered, Marguerite, 20 months old today has mastered Yiddish perfectly, speaks a pure Yiddish, at nine months began to speak Yiddish clearly. In intelligence, she's on a par with three or four-year-old children. 
I don't want to brag about her. Witness to this, who <laughs> tell me about it, are the teaching staff of the school at Nova Lippi, 68. By the way, that was the address of where he hid the first batch of documents. I am not sorry about my life and that of my wife, but I am sorry for the gifted little girl. She deserves to re be remembered also. May we be the redeemers for all the rest of the Jews in the whole world. I believe in the survival of our people. Jews will not be annihilated. We, the Jews of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Lithuania, Latvia, are the scapegoat for all Israel and all the other lands. July 31st, 1942. Two. The 11th day of the so-called resettlement action, in reality, an annihilation action. So I'm just wondering, what, what is your, uh, I mean, I know I have some questions when I read this, but uh, we'll get your reactions, but this focus on wanting to be remembered, uh, and it seems to go back and forth, is, is it personal, is it beyond personal, what's your sense of where this is coming from? I think it's definitely personal. Um, I think it's beyond personal too, I think it's personal in the sense that they didn't want to be anonymous. First of all, he wanted his relatives abroad to know what happened to him and to his family. And, um, and you know, so much of the Shoah is anonymous. Now, the, the number six million, according to Professor Uta Bauer, the number is probably closer to five and a half million, but let's use the term that's generally accepted, six million is so um, soulless, is so anonymous. Joseph Stalin, who was probably a greater mass murderer than Adolf Hitler, once said, the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. And so many of the victims of the Shoah become a statistic. And I think that it's true now, but I think it was true then too. I think he understood that at the, at the time as well. He didn't want to just be a statistic. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted his wife and his child to be remembered. Um, so yeah, I think it was true then, and I think it's true today. I think the, the other line, which I really don't understand, I don't think, when he talks about, may we be the redeemers, I guess it's so poignant only that we think of redeemer or redemption connoting a great saving, a moment of release and freedom and, and, and ultimate success. And he's saying, may we be the redeemers at this moment of death. And I'm wondering what you think he meant by that in terms of, may we be the redeemers for all the rest of the Jews in the whole world. And, and, and after that, the use of the term scapegoat, which takes me to a different place all together, and so I'm wondering if you can comment on those terms, and maybe we, other people can weigh in on what they think is happening here, on a, even on a theological level. What is he saying about mm -hmm. the Jewish people? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start with scapegoat, because there I think what he's trying to say is that a portion of the Jewish people is going to be murdered. But the Jewish people will survive. I think that's what he means by scapegoat. Uh, that we're bearing the sins, that we're bearing the fate 
but that everybody else will survive. By the way, at this time, um, he didn't know uh, that West European Jewry uh, or Greek Jewry uh, were going to be uh, murdered as well. The question you're asking about redeemers is a good question. I don't know what the answer is. My instinct is, and I have no way of proving this true, is that it was the hope that the terrible events they were going through would ultimately lead to some kind of redemption. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of our history and tradition about Chevlei Mashiach, the trials of the pre-Messianic period that will ultimately lead to the Messianic redemption. And I think that that might be what he was referring to, but I can't be sure. Was he a believer, in a sense? Was he a religiously observant? Um, from what I know, uh, no, I actually don't know. Thinking of somebody else, I actually don't know if he was a believer. Um, it's interesting that uh, Manuel Ringelblum, uh, who brought together the Yonik Shabbos group, was not observant. He grew up in a religious Zionist home in a small town called Buchach in Galicia. Uh, but he left religious life, as many Polish Jews did in the early 20th century. And yet, he was so infused with Jewish tradition that Emanuel Ringelblum used to write in his diary, he said, I should go to the mikveh every morning before I start writing because I'm like a Torah scribe. God forbid I should make one mistake in one letter of what I'm writing. And he writes, I'm sorry, but he, at the end of his life, he, was, he escaped from the Warsaw Ghetto, he found refuge with his wife and child in a uh, Catholic home. The family was denounced. The family, as well as the Jews they were hiding, were brought to the SS prison in Warsaw, Paviak prison. And there's an eyewitness there who met him there. And the eyewitness said to him, and the eyewitness says, first of all, when he came to the prison, Ringelblum was still writing in the prison. And he came to Ringelblum and he said, we can get you out. I'm a member of the underground. We can say you're a shoemaker. We can get you out of here. And Ringelblum pointed to his son who was sitting on his lap. I think he was seven or eight years old. And he said, what about my son? What about my wife in the women's section of the prison? And the courier from the underground reports that he had nothing to say because they could get Ringelblum out. They couldn't get his son or his wife out. And so he said, the courier writes, Ringelblum understood. And he said, in that case, I prefer to go the way of Kiddush Hashem. He was not a religious person. He had left observance. But I think that for those people who had left observance in Poland in the early 20th century, they were so infused with Jewish life and tradition that it was still a very much a part of them. So I don't know if Israel Lichtenstein was observant. Chances are he was not. But I think he was nonetheless, like Emanuel Ringelblum, infused with this kind of language. Any of you sitting here have any thoughts about what he means by redemption or that uh, the Jews being in Poland were going to somehow be redeemers for the rest of the Jewish people? I think the idea of pidyon, you're giving something up 
to redeem something else, and there has to be a sacrifice of some kind in order to bring about the redemption. So it's like, so in a sense, it fits with the scapegoat. This idea we're going to be sacrificed in exchange for uh, everyone else living. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, David, you can answer. I'm wondering if anybody else here has. There's not a sense of regret over being Jewish. There's no sense of, you know, if only we had assimilated earlier, my wife and child would have been spared this fate. I'm wondering if anybody's surprised by that. There's no, there's not a sense of bitterness. He doesn't seem to bemoan the fact that he was born a Jew and suffering this fate. I'm wondering what people think about that. And David, what do you think about that? You know, I, last night I happened to watch the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War. I've seen some of Ken Burns' earlier works. I highly recommend it. And there was a piece where they were interviewing a veteran who described a certain situation in Vietnam. And he said at a certain point he knew he was going to die. And he said, the fear left him. The fear left him, and he was able to fight and you know, just wanted to take down as many of the enemy as he could. He survived, obviously, to tell the tale. I think that Israel Lichtenstein at this point is past fear. I think the fear has already left. About the idea of regret about being Jewish, we don't see it here. Um, there were some survivors who, after the war, concluded that it was best to hide the fact that they were Jewish. Uh, especially those who remained in Poland uh, and remained after the purges of Jews in 56 and 67. Um, it was true also of some of the Jews that went to Sweden after the war. There were some Jews who did come to that conclusion after the war. Uh, anybody else want to respond to that? Yes. I was struck by the sentence in which he's writes, I am not sorry about my life and that of my wife. He continues, but I am sorry for the gifted little girl. She deserves to be remembered also. So it's not directly um, or specific about being Jewish, but we see maybe what you've discussed, a lack of fear and acceptance, no bitterness, no sadness. Um, to me, it's somewhat surprising, but given the circumstances, maybe not unexpected. But um, clearly, he and his wife were still young. They had a lot of life ahead of them uh, had they been elsewhere. Um, I'm sure as a parent, he, he would think of this girl so young and already so bright, but it's hard for me to, to understand that position. Mm. So, yes, please. I'm just thinking, you know, sitting here in 2017, reading this piece is a testament as to why he did this, which is so heartfelt. And he says, I don't want any gratitude, any monument, any praise. I want only remembrance that my family, brother, and sister abroad may know what came in their remains. Like, thank you for bringing him to life 
you fulfilled his wishes by us studying this text tonight. And I think that's the point of why he did this for everyone. So that's what I... Okay. Tonight we're remembering Marguerite, right? It's yes, a 20 month exactly. old child, but she's. Exactly. We're always going to know there was a child named Marguerite who uh, spoke beautiful Yiddish at nine months old. That's right. And we're going to have that. So, David, I know I that. Just, I yeah, just want to respond and say, I, I was going to, Audrey, I appreciate what you said very much, and I was actually going to save that for the end. That what we're doing here is we're fulfilling his last wish. Because 75 years later, in a faraway place called Washington, D.C., we are remembering him and his wife, Gela Sextine, and his daughter, Marguerite. You know, I, I can't, yeah, Rob? Uh, to respond to a point made earlier, uh, he sees the despair around him, but he has a higher task, which is preserving this material, and with zeal and zest, he threw that himself into it. Uh, so when you're confronted with, you know, these, you know, terrible tragedies around you, you can despair or you can invest yourself into something else. And he's taken that other path of doing that. So he is, you know, he's beyond that sadness, but it's just, beca- and he's moved on to a higher purpose for him. You know, David, it... I know for myself that when I, anytime the Shoah is put in front of me, I do feel a certain anger or bitterness. And, and I'm wondering, you, you grew up with, with that story, right? It was present from your earliest memory. And I'm wondering, do you feel it's given you any kind of legacy of bitterness or anger? You know, I never met my full grandparents. They were all killed by the Nazis. And we actually have one picture of my paternal grandparents, one picture of my maternal grandmother. We don't have a picture of my maternal grandfather. I have no idea what he looked like. I also lost an aunt uh, who was killed by the Nazis, who we don't have a picture of. Um, But now that you say it, I have to say, I think that uh, I don't feel so much bitterness as uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. Um, The sense of mission, writ large, is about helping to create more vibrant Jewish life. And writ small, the sense of mission is about educating people in particular about uh, the Shoah. I'm curious to to hear from some of you when you encounter this kind of material. I mean, this is a very uh, this is a heavy topic. You know, usually uh, when we do this podcast, people bring in something that's you know, and is not light, but kind of this cheerfully inspiring kind of material. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that we're engaging this material and this issue because I think it's really important and profound. But I'm just wondering, when you engage this material, do you come away inspired or do you come away feeling bitter or angry or down, sad? Both. So in what way does it inspire you? We're here. You know, like I think about Mayor, whose parents are I think both only children and married late because 
their parents had been in the Holocaust. And um, and Mayor saying, Ms. Mayor is one of the teachers at Fridays, and saying in his saying that um, he would ask his parents, why am I an only child? And he didn't understand why it was so um, sad of a question for him to ask his parents. Um, but then Mayor has nine kids. So, and like last time I was there, which was in 2014, he had his 18th grandchild. Many more. Since. Many more. <laughs> so, you know, I remember him saying like, he's, he's building his own tribe. He joked with our class in 2000, and it's true. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's devastating to know what happened to people's families and what we could have been, how many of this there, there could have been. And then on the other hand, we basically picked ourselves up from the ashes and grew back. You know, like you know, started the process of growing back. So there's a certain, I think, resiliency and a certain sense of pride that comes with that. It's just that we keep it, in, it you know, balance that with keeping it in check of all these terrible things happen to our people and like you know what that can do to your kind of psyche. There was recently a, a research that I heard about on the news where trauma is uh, can be passed down through genetic mm -hmm. material mm -hmm. into grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and even if those great-grandchildren didn't experience the trauma, and I feel like that's very true of Jews as a people. That we, you know, I, I have no family members that were in the Holocaust, but were in pogroms and other things, and you can feel, you know, when you, especially when you meet someone who's like a more recent immigrant or something, like, oh, that's why my family is the way it is, because of these generations of previous things that happened to us. Wow. Yeah, Carol? I'm just thinking of the flip side, <clears throat> where parents, grandparents, don't reveal the story. Um, and I don't usually watch Henry Louis Gates's genealogy, genealogy show, but I did a few weeks ago, because... Larry David and Bernie Sanders were both Are they related to each other? Well, yes, I mean, the, the, the sequence shows that they are, but I was subsequently, oh, in fact, I was visiting over Sukkot, I was visiting Ed, Winter, Ed and Bobby Winter, because they were visiting their son here in Silver Spring, and I was discussing this, and another person, in their sukkah said, it's all, prob it's all probability. Um, any two Jews are highly likely to show the same, <laughs> I don't even know the right word, front of. But at any rate, um, but here were two men who had no idea of the, the losses in their, in their respective families. So does that mean then they go through life um, with less motivation to attempt to recreate, not recreate, but attempt to foster Jewish communities, Jewish learning, and just Yiddishkeit in, in general. I don't know, I, there's no way to answer that, but, but there is that flip side, unlike what you grew up with, David, where you knew what was what. So, uh, yeah. So just relating back to the question of you know what how to feel about this kind of text and is it you know does it inspire you? Um, I mean I think sometimes it's hard to think about how something that's can be inspiring 
Um, but it, so when you asked that question, it made me think of this idea that I heard recently um, that, so if, you, if on the same day you have an, an, a Shiva house to go to um, and then a Simcha event to go to, you know, what, what do you do? Should you go to both of them? Which one should you go to first? Um, and so that you should, you should go to the house of Shiva first um, so, be, because there they'll be talking about the meaning of life, um, and how to appreciate it. Um, and so then when you go to the place of Simca, you can sort of tap as much as you can out of that and really appreciate the meaning of joy, um, as opposed to going there first and, you know, God forbid you should sort of engage in the Simca frivolously and not really understand, like, what the meaning of Simca should be. Um, so that... Uh, related kind of back to the question for me about how something this somber can inspire us. Yeah, I, I think there's some there's an inspirational component here, uh, especially with that first line, zeal and zest. I throw myself into the work. Uh, it it almost it inspires me to do what we do in Jerusalem as far as as far as educating and and uh, creating Jewish experiences. And we, thank God, have very little external pressure, at least external pressures of this nature, on a, on a day-to-day threat to our lives. Uh, and I think, we can, I think we probably can learn a lot from the zeal and the zest that he's, under such pressure, uh, <clears throat> devoting. And if, if, if he can do it, then I think certainly we uh, have a duty to do it uh, as well. Yeah, I'll take one more comment. I want to come back to that point. Go ahead. You know, it connects a little bit with this, but I mean, certainly it's hard not to feel sad and bitter about when you read these things, but the feeling I have often when I'm reading these stories is not so much inspiration, but awe. I'm just in awe of what people went through. How could they have uh, endured some of the things that they did, both people in ghettos, uh, partisans who were sleeping in the woods in the wintertime and fighting with barely anything, uh, um, uh, righteous Gentiles who were risking their lives and their families' lives. How do you find the courage to to do that? And I, I've met a, a few of righteous Gentiles, and I always ask myself. And when I read those stories, I think, would I have done the same thing? You know, wh- how would I have reacted in this kind of a situation? And I don't know the answer to that question honestly, because it. So I'm I'm just in complete awe of that. Me too. So, Daniel, you raised something that I think, David, I'd like to hear your response to it. Do, as an educator, do we want to educate that sense of responsibility? You know, because uh, we have survived the Shoah, we have a responsibility to maintain and, uh, you know, rem- not only remember, but carry our Jewish identity forward. I remember, you know, uh, when I was a kid, that was a major focus. Uh, we used to get an occasional speech that you know you owe it to the to those who died in the Shoah to maintain your Jewishness, and I had mixed feelings about that message, and I, I don't really educate from that place. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that, because I think for those who are alumni, Pardes doesn't really educate from that place very much, but it's very present here in this text that you brought, and I think it sounds like it's present in your own personal motivation. So I kind of want to hear you on that. It's definitely 
very much part of my personal motivation. But I think that I try to work very hard uh, that Pardes shouldn't be focused on the Shoah in that way. I think the reasons to uh, create and continue and develop Jewish life go far beyond the Shoah. Uh, if anything, they tie into Jewish life before the Shoah. Um, and obviously what they tie into is the richness of our sources, the richness of our tradition, the way um, Jewish uh, traditional life can enrich our lives in so many ways, um, whether it's Shabbat or Jewish learning or just in so many different ways. Um, and, and that's what I think should be the focus at Pardes and in general in Jewish education. Um, I, I, I feel very badly when I hear about people who went to, let's say, Hebrew school and where a disproportionate amount of the time was spent on the Shoah and not enough time was spent learning Hebrew or learning Tanakh, you know, or learning uh, the liturgy, uh, probably because it was more accessible for the teachers who didn't know too much themselves either. Uh, and that's a terrible disservice to the Jewish tradition. It's even a terrible disservice to Jewish history. The Shoah is just one episode in Jewish history. And Jewish history, by the way, is not only filled with persecution, it's also filled with golden ages and, uh, and prosperity and flourishing and intellectual achievement and cultural achievement. So even within Jewish history, I think it's a terrible thing to focus too much on the Shoah and not to focus on the rest of Jewish history. So how much more so when you're talking about Jewish education in general? Um, so I feel both things. I feel my personal connection. I feel it's important to teach the Shoah. But I think it has to be done in a measured way uh, and not dominate the curriculum. So I'm curious to hear from some of you, or any of you, about how, how much do you think the Holocaust does play in your identity, and how much do you think it should in terms of your own Jewish identity? Yes? Um, I think that, yeah, I think it's important to you know, talk about a lot of different things, but I think for some students, the Holocaust could kind of be that light bulb that engages them and moves them forward in their Jewish journeys. Um, for me, that was the case. Um, in my day school, we had a Holocaust elective. I grew up in Detroit. And um, my chapter school had an elective, and that was when I started to really engage um, with my Judaism. And even to this day, I'm still involved in various projects with Holocaust survivors and Holocaust education initiatives with Marcia Living and everything. So um, I don't know. I think it's important, because the Pew study, I mean, most people identify with their Judaism through the Holocaust, so it's you know a shame to kind of ignore that completely. And a lot of people do identify themselves through that. Right. But when I read that, I was very disturbed. Yeah. You know that uh, on a very different level, it was like the percentage of Jews, the Havdil, who identified with Jewish humor. I mean, that's what Jewish life is about. Yeah. So I, I, I feel very strongly that I, I always identified with the Holocaust as being a huge part of who I was. My grandmother's a survivor. She was, we were around her a lot. She always cooked for the family and things like that. She was a kindergarten teacher and I'd go to her class. So I, I spent a ton of time with her and I learned about it very early. Like I don't even know how young I was, but I was very young. And I remember reading Holocaust books at an age when I think some relatives 
thought I was too young and things like that. And, and that, all of that felt very normal and natural to me and who I was, but that's not what I'm choosing for my child. Like, my child was almost seven. We don't, we sort of say don't use the H word around her, and we talk, in, all the adults talk about stuff, but we don't, we don't want that to be what she thinks Judaism is. And as, as time passes, it's natural that the next generation will hopefully have additional things, and though they'll know about the Holocaust, it won't feel as personal to them. And I think that's a positive step forward. Yeah, I just want to say that. Um, actually, I was just in Vilna, um, and the more I do learn about Jewish life before the war, the sadder it, it really is becoming. So, you know, I had the, the usual day school focus on the Holocaust itself, on the, the mechanisms, etc., and which is horrific. But I'm getting more profoundly sad the more I understand <coughs> what was cut short, and uh, you know I see, what, and also how unfair it is really um, that sense of injustice that you know these countries could have been largely Jewish countries, you know, with large ethnic minorities. I mean, much more so than in America. I mean, and you think of what the multicultural Lithuania or compound Poland would have looked like if it continued, and it would have been remarkable, you know, and uh, it, it's terrible for us, it's terrible for them, I mean, so, and I think that is happening more and more now. I think people, as they become interested in uh, Jewish heritage, genealogy, etc., that's, that's maybe a different kind of connection, which is, I don't know that it's sadder, but is also very sad, but maybe... I think doesn't have all the objections that you had about a Shoah-centered identity. Um, I'm really strongly of the belief that Judaism has a lot of different entry points, and I think that for a lot of people for whom their connection to Judaism is formed or strengthened by learning about the Holocaust, I think that's a really strong and important piece, but that it needs, like, that Jewish education has to go much further than that. And I also think that it's a strong, serious disservice to the memory of those who died to focus only on how they died and not on how they lived and how their parents and grandparents and before, and the tradition that brought them to wherever they were, um, which is why I feel very strongly about my connection to Jewish text and liturgy and like a long-standing history um, and tradition that I think that if if our education starts and stops at like the tragedy of the Shoah and that's it, that we're just missing such a massive piece of what makes the Jewish people who we are. Mm. Judy, you want to say something? Yeah, I was just gonna say I think as a Jewish people we have like we have a complex around the Shoah. Like I mean it's very clear the way that you introduced it, like that hesitancy in even talking about it in this type of setting and teaching about it at Pardes, like we want to, we want to do it because we think it's important. It's part of our identity. It's part of our history. But we don't want to push it on people. We don't want to that to be the lens or the framework through which they see Judaism because we see so much more to Judaism. This is a part of Judaism. It's not all of Judaism. So we have this complex about it. I think it's really intense, specifically because we're. It feels like we're so close to it. Like it's so recent. That I mean, we have people who lived through it who are still alive, which is amazing. I mean, they're they're dying. That's that's almost over. But we're still like we're still so close to it. We're still processing it. We're still trying to understand it and wrap our heads around it. 
we have second generation trauma, we have third generation trauma. I mean, it's just, it's so complex and we're so close to it. It'll be interesting to see as we, you know, as the years continue and move on, just the historiography of it. Like, how are we passing on the information? How are we memorializing it and fitting it into the greater context? And I think it gets also to like the question of like the uniqueness of the Holocaust, like of a genocide, because I think we're getting into the question of, well, let's, you know, I think people are interested in what's happening in the rest of the world, and let's, like, was this unique to what happened to the Jewish people, or are there other genocides that are happening, and the question is, do we need to remember it for our identity, do we need to think about it in terms of never again, never let this happen to anybody else, and so I think... So, yeah, I want to pick up on that point. Actually, two things that I'm curious about. Number one, uh, if you look at terms of Jewish liturgy or Jewish practice, right, the Holocaust has had a much smaller effect so far than the destruction of the temple, for example. Right? Destruction of the temple yielded a whole book in the Bible. Uh, it yielded uh, the rise of synagogues and a whole host of other practices, and it made its way in our liturgy, and we, we reference it all the time. And the Shoah, the reality is, I think, and I'm, I'm happy to be, you can disagree, but if, if a Jew had gone to sleep in 1930, uh, and then a Rip Van Winkle kind of story, and then came with me to synagogue in Silver Spring this morning, there would have been nothing in the service that would have let him know that the Holocaust happened. And, and I'm willing to bet he could have gone to Shul now, week after week after week, it would have taken a long time before the issue would someone would it would have come up, and it's a very curious thing that it has not. On the one hand, it's it's clearly the most traumatic event I think that's happened to the Jewish people perhaps in two thousand years since the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the Temple. On the other, you know, I struggle. Have we really done enough with it? Has it you know have we incorporated or maybe as Judy's saying it's too. It's too big, we're too close, we don't even know how to manage it. Maybe it's just too soon. I mean, it takes centuries to kind of incorporate some of this stuff, right? Maybe. It's what's in our current, you know, Sidur happened, you know, that were more likely happened many, 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 yeah, many years ago. So it's too soon. I'm a little confused about that question just because I think that the temple destruction, like, necessitated a new way of Jewish life, whereas Jewish rabbinic practice didn't necessarily become inaccessible with the loss of so many of our people. I don't know. Well, some, you know, like Richard Rubenstein, among others, would say, in the, in the shadow of the Holocaust, how can we still appeal to God as a Savior? How can we still talk about God hearing our prayers? How can we still speak about any kind of fairness or justice in the world? Or to take it farther, some people said, how could religious Jewish life mean anything? Right, if such a, if, if that kind of horror could happen, so I think for some people, but you're right. Ultimately, we we did not we don't tend to view it that way. We have still said rabbinic Judaism is still viable. You're saying temple Judaism couldn't be viable because we lost the temple, but I guess in theory we could have built one somewhere else, perhaps. But I think it's an interesting question, uh, Fallon. So one is, I would say, some people would say, well, the way we got, I mean, someone who's like maybe religiously minded would say the way we got through is because of our faith, right? So it's in response to what you were saying. Um, one thing that always struck me is that there's Yom HaShoah, and we don't fast on Yom HaShoah. Like, Som Gedalia, meh. Like, that doesn't mean that much to me, but Yom HaShoah, you know, 
and that's when I would more feel the need to fast, for example. Um, but going back to what Judy said, I, I find it fascinating sort of the generational different, like how, how the Shoah moves generationally. Because I remember when I was at Pradesh, we had um, a survivor, I think, come in and speak. She was very moving. The baby rush was packed, whatever. And then um, several years later, one of my very close friends who still works for Pardes, um organized an event, a similar event, booked that person for the Beit Midrash and some other options for the smaller rooms. And the Beit Midrash was empty and the other rooms were packed. And she called me to point out what she noticed about where the students were choosing to go as far as what topic they wanted to hear about. And she said, I just think it's generational that you know we were taught a very... Holocaust-based Jewish education, and we sort of felt like we owed this to our ancestors, or whatever our connection was. And then as generationally things moved on, younger uh, people maybe didn't feel that pull in the same way. So I'm interested to hear Judy's comment about, like, there is this tension, and, you know. Yeah. In some practices, uh, Shoah is a part of the Yizkor service and perhaps Absolutely. readings yeah, sure. readings on Tisha B'Av yeah. sure. I think it it's a question though that goes to how how the service is codified and what changes are allowed and in certain communities there isn't much change since a historic time and it's fixed. It might also be that the Shoah is not seen as a religious event or raises troubling questions about our theology, about our belief in God that are hard to answer um, and challenging in a way so that it can't be directly explained or incorporated into religious practice and observance. Yeah, I think for me the centering of Holocaust and Holocaust memory in Jewish identity, Jewish experience also raises really interesting questions about relations between Ashkenazi and Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews. Yes, there were Sephardi, Ottoman Sephardi in Albania and Greece that were killed by the show as well, but in if a Jewishness is centered around a almost exclusively Ashkenazi experience, what does that then mean for the rest of Jewry? Yeah, in Israel, it comes up all the time, the high schools often have trips to Poland. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting question, what we're saying about the kids from who trace back to Morocco and other countries. You know, is that really the story that they need to hear? Is it their story? You know, the one, of course, it's the Jewish people, but on their hand, it's a very Ashkenazic Jewish story in many ways. And uh, are we giving equal time to uh, the Sephardic? So it's a very fair question. Yeah. I'm actually working on an initiative at the Holocaust Museum. We're going to be having an event in January on the Sephardic Jews that passed away. Um, so that's something that ha- has been needed, and the Holocaust Museum is working on an initiative to grow that yes. and try to find artifacts. And the new Yad Vashem Historical Museum that opened up about seven years ago also gives more play to the Sephardic experience. I, I, my feeling is that in Israel, um, Sephardi Jews, for the most part, have absorbed that as part of their history, too, even if it didn't 
happen in the same way in Morocco that happened in Poland. But I think that that, that piece has been very much <coughs> absorbed uh, as uh, part of the collective history of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I find the observation that you made that our tradition, our ritual tradition is not really um, taking account of the Holocaust to the same extent as other tragedies or things in our, in our history. But I'm actually very pleased that it hasn't um, because I think that when you ritualize something like the Holocaust, it dictates a certain way that you should interact with it. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily an appropriate response. I think it's, I think it's healthy to allow for a multiplicity of reactions to something like the Holocaust. Um, it sort of takes me back to when I was walking through my Donic and my high school class trip, and everybody tells you ahead of time, like, it's okay if you don't cry, everybody should do what they need to do. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of wise. It's not really what you want to hear before walking into a death camp. Um, but, but it's true. Um, so rather than, you know, saying a Misha Berach every time you go to shul for people who died in the Holocaust, I think it's nice to sort of have to sit with it yourself and figure out what to do. So I want to close with uh, one more question for David, which I think is a very live issue. It's actually live here as well in terms of the goal of Holocaust education. And there's a really live debate whether is the primary focus of Holocaust education is the Holocaust teaches us about anti-Semitism and the experience of Jewry with the worst form of anti-Semitism, or does the Holocaust teach us about racism and the worst expression of human evil? And, and, and especially in Washington, where I think you've got the United States Holocaust Museum, and I think of Yad Vashem as the, the alternative statement in, in many ways. And David, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on that uh, as an educator. I, I think the Shoah can be used and misused to teach just about anything. <laughs> and often it really does get misused. It gets misused by Jews and non-Jews. It gets misused by the right and by the left. Um, people, you know, It's sort of like the archetypal story of evil in Western civilization today. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, that... There's more being written about the Shoah today than 50 years ago. And the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, January 27th, there were more world leaders at the 60th anniversary than at the 50th anniversary. And more at the 50th than at the 40th. And that sense has defied the normal rule of history, which is the farther away you get, the more people forget and are not interested in it. But there is more interest today than there was certainly in the 1950s and even in the 1960s and 70s. Um, <coughs> look, there's no question that, it, that it's both, to answer your question directly. It is a story of racism and xenophobia, and it is a story of anti-Semitism. And it depends how you want to treat it. If you want to universalize it, and there are times when it's important to universalize it, uh, I would say yes. And if you want to particularize it, and I think there are times when you want to particularize it, but I think it's, it's about the Jewish people. Um, 
So I, I don't mean to avoid answering the question. I think that the answer is it depends on the context. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant because I see how much it's misused. Uh, and uh, not every act of anti-Semitism is the Shoah. Not every act of racism is the Shoah. People are very quick to right away draw parallels. Uh, and, uh, and they distort, in that sense, those people are Holocaust deniers. Um, even though they, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of a couple of examples. One example was when the, uh, when Israel decided to evacuate the settlements from the Gaza Strip, uh, the Jewish settlements, so some of the uh, people living there uh, underwent to travel without a doubt, uh, wore yellow stars as if they were victims of the Shoah, and they drew that parallel. Well, I wish my grandparents had been evacuated forcibly from their homes. I wish that was the extent of the Shoah. And it happens on the left, too. I don't have an example right now. It happens in Israel. It happens outside of Israel. Um, but I think that I think that there are times when we need to look at it from a particular point of view because it did happen not by chance to the Jewish people. Uh, and there are times when we need to learn more universal lessons because other genocides and tragedies have happened too, and this is certainly one of them, if not the leading example of it. Okay, I think uh, we're going to close. Uh, David, I want to thank you for uh, bringing something uh, that's probably that's difficult and, uh, and, and very personal. Uh, I think it's given me a great insight. For those of you who may not know, David is the most zealous defender of students' time and Pardes' time uh, in terms of not wanting to minimize the schedule, not wanting to miss an available moment of, of learning. And I think I now have a better appreciation of, uh, you know, that zeal and I think, uh, and that zest and that, that, uh, that passion and why every minute is so precious. Uh, and I think it's a great lesson for me to learn. I really appreciate you sharing this text and giving us an insight into where that at least some of that real passion and drive and, uh, and real faith and commitment come from. So I want to thank our hosts. I want to thank all of you. Uh, and I hope uh, you people at home, when you're listening to this, will enjoy it. And I hope people who are here uh, are quite confident to enjoy it. And uh, for those of you listening right now, stay tuned for another episode, which will come along at some time in the future. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org.